right. So we have another episode of the Men Mentor podcast. I'm your host, Justin Oliveira. I'm a first year medical student. And on this show, we're trying to highlight the examples of accomplished physicians of color and inspire you all to go into medicine. So our guest on the show today is Dr. Irene Blanco. She's a board certified rheumatologist based in the Bronx. She was born and raised in Jersey and after earning a bachelor's in French literature from Columbia, she attended medical school at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. After completing a residency in internal medicine at the New York Presbyterian Wall Cornell Medical Center, she returned to Einstein to complete a fellowship in rheumatology and earn a master's in clinical research methods. After completing her fellowship, she remained at Einstein as a professor and course director, serving as the Associate Dean of Diversity Enhancement since 2015. She serves on dozens of local and national committees focusing on rheumatology, increasing diversity in the physician workforce, and advocating for patients and the marginalized communities they may represent. Dr. Blanco is also actively involved in research with authorship in 20 peer-reviewed publications. Dr. Blanco. Wow. <laughs> I haven't heard my CV laid out in a while. Okay. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Thank you for the lovely introduction. Of course. Did I leave out anything? Uh, sure. Maybe my birth date or my social security number. <laughs> Otherwise, I think you're good. Well, thank you very much for being on the show today. I know you have a very busy schedule. I mentioned you did a million and one things, um, so we appreciate having you. Um, so let's start just talking about your early life. Um, what was your life like growing up, your neighborhood, your home environment, some influences that you had growing up? Um, sure. So um, like you heard, I grew up in northern Jersey. Um, I, you know, it's um, a very sort of blue collar town. Um, you know, it's funny, the neighborhood around where both you and I are right now at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine here in this section of the Bronx, um, looked and felt a lot like the um, neighborhood that I grew up in. So a lot of single family homes, but typically everybody was very blue collar. Um, where we are, we're right off the New Jersey Turnpike and right off the Lincoln Tunnel. Um, so that's like a big corridor for trucking, shipping. There's like a huge UPS center, a huge post office center, like a million companies have warehouses there. Um, so like everybody seemed to work in one of those jobs um, or work for the town. And then sure enough, eventually my mom did go to work for one of those companies. Um, my growing up, my dad was a foreman in a factory. Um, and so my mom did piecemeal factory work as well in the factory. And that's kind of how we grew up. I was semi an only child. Um, my dad was a lot older than my mom. So I have a brother who is significantly older than I am. Um, so when I was little, he was more like an uncle, um, but now very much he's my sibling and we and lovingly annoy each other. Um, you know, now that he's 60 and I'm in my forties, um, we're close enough in age that we can annoy each other. Sure. And so with your parents working, were they around? Were they not around? Were they working weird hours? It was, so it was a very strange sort of setup. Um, I don't, I've rarely talked about it out loud and yet it's like this is potentially the second time I tell the story this week um, because my daughter was very confused about this setup um, when I was growing up. So it was weird. Like my mom was a stay at home mom. Okay. Um, but my dad, because they were like, he was the foreman of the factory um, at the time what the factory used to do, they're no longer in business, um, even though the building's actually still there. And I drove by it recently, it was very weird. Um, so what they used to do was like take huge reams of either cloth or lace, break them up into smaller spools so that then they could sell those pieces to like Walmart, Target, um, you know, Michael's and other craft stores. And then that way you can either buy the spool or you can buy some yards off of the spool. Um, and so for some reason, I don't really know why we had a teeny, the house is small, but it had a tiny, and my mother actually still lives there, um, tiny, tiny dining room um, that my dad actually set up a couple of machines from the factory in so that my mom could work from home way before her time, but doing, I weirdly enough, 
piecemeal factory work. Gotcha. It, like, it made no sense. It made absolutely no sense. Um, but I guess, I don't know. It worked for them, I sure. guess. Okay. Um, so, yeah, and there were two machines, but there was only one of her. So I don't really <laughs> understand why there were two. Um, I don't understand how his bosses let him get away with that. Uh-huh. Like, I don't understand the liability of that. Um, I, I don't know. But that's that's sort of how it worked, I guess. Sure. It, yeah, it was semi-random. Um, and so talk about your first introduction to medicine. What was that like? Was it positive? Was it negative? Um, you know, it's funny because you had sent me these questions. And so I had like some time to think about it. I think, you know, my first interaction, I guess, with medicine, um, my parents were overall healthy until my father towards the end of his life and my mom until about maybe 10 15 years ago. So I was sort of like well into my adulthood and I didn't necessarily grow up with them being ill. Um, And they were here and most of my family um, was either back in their home countries because they had both immigrated to the United States um, or just in other states. So the little family that my mom had in the U.S. at the time was mostly in Ohio and the little family that my dad had um, was mostly in Florida. And so, you know, it's not that it, it like I had a lot of sick family members or whatnot. Um, in terms of like my personal experience, um, it was really like my pediatrician. Um, and n- now being a doctor and also knowing a lot of pediatricians, just coincidentally, I have a lot of friends that are pediatricians. Pediatricians tend to be like incredibly sweet, kind, wonderful people that love and work with children, right? My pediatricians were just awful humans. Oh, <laughs> and um, and I went to see them until I was like 18 years old. So like I had the perspective of now being grown sure. um, and I'd seen them for 18 years and it was, and I think it was just maybe their practice and where they were located. They had a lot of patients. It was always a huge wait time, um, you know, and I remember like I was on my way to college and I told my pediatrician that I was interested in potentially doing medicine as an aside. And she actually tried to convince me not to do it um, because it was just not a good experience, I guess, for her, Um, which I think then kind of gave me the perspective, I think years later um, where I'm like, well, she was not happy. And I think that definitely translated to her patient care. Um, It was burnout or what? I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. I mean, that office was crammed with kids anytime you went, like anytime you went, the, the walls were like busting, um, you know, children kind of strewn everywhere um, because it was just a, an incredibly busy practice, which I guess is good um, to a certain extent. Right. But like, I'm sure she was burnt out. Sure. And then at what point did you decide that you were going to pursue medicine? So, you know, I mean, I had thought about it on and off um, over the years. I was very much sort of like, I didn't know what to do with myself. I had a constellation of things that I liked and things that like I didn't like. I really, really enjoyed the biomedical sciences. Um, so I really love sort of like biology, immunology, stuff like that. I realized that I hated <laughs> stuff like chemistry and physics Um, And that translated through college, by the way, (laughs) like I was just horrible. I'd like, I don't understand those things. Um, And, you know, so I really liked biology. I was like, what do you do with this? And like, you know, my, my parents didn't go to college and I didn't necessarily have anyone around me um, that did a lot of these programs and stuff. Um, And so I like grad school versus medical school versus, and you know, the, the kind of, I think, experience of immigrant parents, right? Like doctor, lawyer, engineer, um, everybody makes that joke. Sure enough, like my brother's an engineer and I'm a doctor, right? So it's like, this is what you will become. And you're like, yes, sir. Um, one thing that was really interesting though, is that in the Columbia catalog, and in those days, all of the courses would be listed in a booklet in this book, spring book and the fall book, right? For, to sign up for your classes. Um, I went to the page that was like pre-med majors, right? Mm -hmm. Like pre-med. 
It's like, oh, you can be any major. You just have to take these courses. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, then screw that. I'm not going to be a bio major. This is the last (laughs) chance that I have, right? To like put this degree to use. Oh my goodness. Um, And I had taken French throughout high school and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I had taken Spanish as well, more mostly because my mother was adamant that I not speak Spanglish. Um, and she wanted somebody to teach me Spanish properly. Sure. Um, and it's irony of all ironies, like growing up, you know, Spanglish was forbidden and we spoke incredibly sort of very proper, grammatically correct, non-colloquial Spanish at home. And now, because I learned Spanish, it's devolved into this mishmash of slang and, and invented words and, you're like, and things that we only say in my house yeah. that have now become, you know, like common lexicon, right? Like those random words, you're like, who made up that word? Yeah. Because it obviously is not a typical slang word, right? Sure. So, so yeah, it said, you know, you could be whatever major. And I was like, well, then I'm going to be a French major because if I can go to Paris, right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go there. Um, and that's so, what I did. Yeah. Were, you, were you reading in French? I was reading. I was writing. I wrote a thesis. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but, okay, so let's talk about, like, poor kids doing crazy uh-huh. majors, okay? Uh-huh. So, yeah. like, I couldn't afford Microsoft Word in mm. French, like you'd have to buy in those days, you'd have to buy the French Microsoft Word suite, right? Mm. So like the suite that you'd build buy in Paris. Mm. I didn't have the money for that, right? So it was so like, I didn't have spell check. I didn't have grammar check. I didn't have the source. It was like me and my dictionary, right? Like word by word, <laughs> sentence by <laughs> sentence. Oh, wow. <laughs> the um, the perseverance yeah <laughs> to do this stupid major um and it's funny because you know how like in spell check you can save the words yeah right so eventually i made my own french dictionary yeah. in word yeah. because i kept saving um all of these words okay that's very interesting um kudos to you because i don't think i could have done that um, I don't know what possessed me, but like, that's also like a mentoring thing, right? I wish somebody had like sat me down right, and like right. talked to me, like right. you are insane. Yes. We're, we're going to, we're going to get to that later for sure. Think about we're, how we're much extra time I spent right. doing on this crap as opposed to studying other things. Right. Yes. But it was my major. So, but I don't know, like some, I think lots of good things came out of it, but I don't know if I, I went about right. it in the most efficient way. So with all that being said, kind of switching gears a little bit to education and your early training. So what kind of struggles, if any, did you have to overcome to get to medical school? I know you mentioned you were the first in your family to go to college and it wasn't yeah. really, it wasn't really even, nobody could uh, kind of advise you on that. So any struggles that you had to overcome? You know, it was, um, Sue, I was, I was really fortunate. My mom had a friend um, whose son had gotten a scholarship to go to this school. Um, and it's a very fancy, very, very nice prep school in Northern Jersey. Um, you know, I was going to go to the public school, whatever. Um, but my mom had heard about the school and then I, I took the placement exams and then lo and behold, I got a scholarship to go to the school. Um, and I think like a lot of people in any set like for any marginalized person in a setting where they're like the only one right and this school was um it was a k through 12 prep school it is a k through 12 prep school it still exists um and so i went in in seventh grade right and i was literally the only urm so the only latin any the only person of color in my class or even in like the surrounding classes, um, except for like a smattering of Asian students um, until literally I graduated. And then my senior year, yeah, until I I stayed there seventh, eighth, all the way through graduation. Um, And it was a tiny school, like tiny, like my graduating class was 38 people. Oh, wow. (laughs) Like when I tell you tiny, it's tiny. 
And so it was very, very strange, right? Because I didn't live in the neighborhood. I literally, I lived like 25 miles away, right? So it's not even like I would see these kids before school or after school, right? Like I couldn't do, I didn't, I definitely didn't do all of their activities, right? Like, let's go play tennis and let's go to the country club. Like, shut up. Like, who the hell's <laughs> going to go do this thing, right? Um, especially like over the weekend, you know, we didn't really have a car. Like, you know, my dad drove the, the factory's van. So it had like the name of the factory, you know, yeah. and like when you're in seventh grade, imagine yeah. rolling up to this like, 25 acre rolling campus in Northern Jersey, right? You're like earth open up and swallow me whole. Um, But it's not as if at the same time, anybody at the school really tried to make me feel comfortable either, right? It was kind of like, I think it's not that my teachers did like tolerated me. It's like they they didn't not like me. You just didn't feel celebrated. Uh, you didn't feel seen. You were just, I mean, to the fact that like, even our, <laughs> I even talk about like our janitorial staff and our lunch ladies, our lunch ladies are fret, French and oh. our janitorial staff was all white. Oh, wow. And so you're like, oh my God, there's literally no one. Oh, wow. <laughs> literally no one, like no one, oh, like wow. no one, <laughs> like That's different. no one. That's different. It was very crazy. And so like, you know, nobody had any sense. I was like, this, I was like an alien. I was an alien that was like, just kind of dropped off from a random planet that they were like, we don't really know what to do with you. Um, I, I, you're getting good grades. Good luck. Godspeed. Bye. Um, and and it was very, that, yeah, it was very strange. How do you think that affected your undergrad experience? I think it was very... I mean, I think it very, it made it very hard to kind of like ask for help to sort of reach out, to make connections to anyone, um, whether they were URM or not, because I was just, you know, after being kind of self-sufficient really for these like six years, and plus my, my parents weren't really English speaking. So there's, there gets to the point where they can't help you with homework. They don't understand the forms. They don't know what the hell you're doing in, in school. They have just no concept. Right. And then school just kind of being like, whatever, because I was, you know, I wasn't failing. So I was on, I was on autopilot in essence, right? Like I'm getting good grades. I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing. So she must be fine. Right. right? Like nobody's reaching out to me to be like, Hey, how are you doing? Um, I think that really colored my undergrad experience where like, you know, going to seek advisors or mentors, how, how, right? Because you just like, nobody really paid attention to you for, for a really long time. Um, so why would anybody pay attention now? And do you think that the actual application process you were prepared for it, it came easier? Was not that remotely, not remotely. So it was like, I submitted things all kinds of upside down, backwards, late, wrong. <laughs> right. And it, eventually my guidance counselor, and you'd think she'd be more hands-on given the fact that we were this teeny tiny school, but I think also for, because for high I, school. For high school, yeah. Um, yeah, we're a tiny school. Come on, right? Like 38 graduating seniors. How hard is it to find them a place to go, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you'd think that she would have been more hands-on. And it was like really, once I was really flailing, mm-hmm. that she stepped in to sort of save me from myself. Um but I think a lot of that could have been done like sophomore, junior year with a little bit more forethought and preparation. And then applying to medical school, was it the same story? Oh, it was still the same story. It was still the same story. And I think, you know, medical school, um, I had not necessarily the most encouraging pre-med advisor, um, which I think is strangely still such an issue. Right. Like, why do I have the same story as so many other students? And now it's been, you know, whatever it is. I've heard that for every underrepresented student from every prestigious, predominantly white institution that tries to get. Correct. And and you're just like, and it doesn't friggin make sense. And it's actually 
um, things are changing at my institution. They now have this amazing pre-med advisor who is a woman of color herself. And I think she does a really great job at kind of giving a more holistic um, advising to students. Sure. Um, but yeah, like you need that voice in that office. And it was like bananas because for example, I was, so I was working, mm-hmm. right? Because I needed to pay my bills. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this insane major, which n- probably I shouldn't have done, but mm-hmm. honestly really filled my soul. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to take that back at all. Cause it was amazing. And yeah. I think in terms of like critical thinking and like really thinking about sort of like problems and like an author's intent and having to explain my thoughts and ideas, especially in a different language, both verbally and written. Um, it helped like my writing and my critical thinking dramatically. Right. Um, and that's so important for medicine. So I'm a big fan of the humanities and I think we should teach more humanities as pre-med, but I'll pin that. Um, you know, and like what my advising was a lot of, but like, I was also volunteering because I did like science. Like I loved science. So a friend of mine worked in a lab and he was like, Hey, I need help. Um, you want to come help me? And I was like, sure. And I just, I'm very handy and I'm smart. So, and the mice didn't terrify me. So I was like, okay, I'll help you. And so, you know, I gained a lot of sort of practical skills and I was doing a lot of science. So you'd think a pre-med advisor would think to tell me, hey, you know, maybe if medical school isn't the path, maybe graduate school is the path. I know you didn't do a bio major, but potentially you could do a post-bac. You could do like none of those discussions ever happened. It was like, I really don't think you're going to be a medical student. Um, You should go get your MPH. And I was like... Now with a lot of the work that I do, sure, an MPH could have probably been really handy, but like so many times advisors like offer the MPH as if it's not like its own separate degree of study, as if it's not critically important in terms of the healthcare structure. It's like they toss it as this like one off. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And on top of it, the MPH does not really act as a postback, right? Because it doesn't have a lot of the science um, courses that would help the science GPA if that's where you're having difficulty, sure. right? And so I was like, but I don't want to do an MPH. Why would I do an MPH, right? Like, I don't understand you. Yeah. Um, so I kind of just didn't listen to them and kept doing like my own thing. And it worked out. It worked out. Yeah. It worked out. Sure. <laughs> so With a lot of like scrapes and bumps along the way, maybe yeah. some stitches, yeah. but it worked yeah. out. Yes, yes, exactly. So you get to medical school, you're at Einstein. Can you talk a little bit about your experience as a student? Um, you know, I really enjoyed Einstein. I really loved Einstein. Um, and I think to me, it was sort in a way, ironically, it was like the college experience that I didn't have. Um, in what way? Because so the Einstein campus, right? It's very closed. And we all live on campus and we all live in the same buildings. Um, so it that sort of feels a little bit like a college experience, right? Like it's not uncommon that people are like running up and down the stairs with like a pizza and a six pack, right? To like go watch a game, hang out, study, whatever. So it has that vibe. Right. Um, but at the same time, because I'm in medical school and medical school, you know, you're not supposed to work right? Like, you know, all your, my loans covered everything. Like I didn't have seven jobs. I didn't have to, so I could like just study. And when I wasn't studying, I could just hang out. I didn't have to run to work. I was like, Oh my God, I can. So for other students that like medical school is like so intense, right? Like I'm the girl literally spell checking every single word of her thesis with a paper dictionary. Right. (laughs) That now I'm like, oh my God, I can just, so it was very strange how kind of life flipped on its head. And ironically enough, medical school was actually probably more chill the first two years for me than undergrad, because I I didn't have to like, you know, 
oh my God, pick up more hours because my phone got cut off. Right. right? I I worked full-time or part-time since I was like 16 and getting to medical school is the first time in my life that I don't have a job. (laughs) My mom- And you're like, what do I do with myself? (laughs) She's like, you're not going to work? You don't have a job. He's like, but what do you mean you don't have a job? And I'm like- I'm just studying. (laughs) Like, I don't have a job. What? What? And it was so amazing. That a lot of people always want me to ask, how did you finance your education? I know you talked about loans, but what advice do you loans. offer for students? Yeah. So um, I was lucky in that I did get a scholarship. And one more caveat. What advice yeah. do you offer to students that are worried about that? Like, oh my God, how am I going to pay off these massive loans? Um, I will say though, when I was a student, the interest rates on the loans were much, much lower. So I think I would have also had a panic attack um, if I were going to school now. Not to say that you can't finance it, because you can. It takes a long time. Um, You know, you leave with an enormous amount of debt, and the only thing you own is your brain. (laughs) Other people have, like, debt that big, and, like, they own a house. Right. you know, they own a car. Right. Um, you just own your brain. <laughs> so that could be really, really intimidating. I think, um, you know, I left with like close to $200,000 in loans. So not a completely negative amount. Right. Um, I did have some of it funded by Einstein through scholarships. Um, I mean, you know, there are other scholarships that you can apply for either the national medical fellowships, um, the, and HHMA has um, other scholarships. So I think it's just, if you don't necessarily get scholarships from your school, there are other organizations um, that really help to promote diversity within medicine that those scholarships then become available to you. So once you're matriculated, right? And sometimes I hear students be like, well, it's only $5,000. I'm like, if you saw a quarter right. and bend down and pick it up, if you stop for a quarter, quarters. <laughs> why can't you write one damn essay for five grand? I'm like, right, you right. don't need $5,000? <laughs> I'm like, you wouldn't be coming to my office for free snacks if you didn't need $5,000. <laughs> so I, I want to talk about your specialty, but before we do that, just yeah. kind of thinking about your early career, either as a medical student or as a resident or even as a junior attending, can you speak about maybe one or two experiences that stick out to you where you either witnessed or personally experienced discrimination that kind of stick out? Yeah, I mean, and it doesn't stop, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, granted, I am a light-skinned woman, right? So I get a lot of other shit potentially that, you know, I, I don't experience colorism and racial bias, right? The way other people are going to experience. I'm going to say that, you know, out loud. Um, But yeah, I mean, you're just like, as a woman in medicine, you tend to not be seen, right? And more often like, yeah, I don't mind getting called nurse, but like when everything you just said to a patient is discounted because they're waiting for the doctor to show up, right? And you're like, I'm the doctor. Yeah. Right. Um, the just being spoke, spoken over, not heard, constantly questioned. Right. I remember when I was a junior faculty member, um, this patient was admitted mm-hmm. who obviously had one of our diseases, one of our, like what we call the connective tissue diseases. And a lot of them tend to overlap with each other. So it can be kind of hard to tease out exactly which one somebody has. Um, and so I'm a junior faculty member, right? I'm writing my note, making my recommendations, please do this, do this, do this. And, you know, the attending on the case was like, well, this patient obviously doesn't have anything of what you're saying. You don't know anything. Um, you know, I'm just going to treat them for this. And I was like, but what are you saying? Like, I'm looking, I'm, I'm, I'm examining with the patient. Like I did a fellowship in this. (laughs) Like I passed my boards. Yeah. You know, and it's just so dismissive. And then it was crazy because then the fellow, so the person, you know, between residency and attending hood, you will do a fellowship if you want to sub-sub-specialize. Sure. 
So the fellow that picks up the patient later, he's now presenting to me in the outpatient setting in the clinic. And he's like, well, the team obviously didn't recognize that he had a connected tissue disease. And I was like, stop it. That is not what happens. Yeah. I'm like, that is not what happened. Um, but yeah, and like you'll hear the way people discuss patients. Like I was touring for residencies um, and we had been on a tour with the chief resident at a very prominent residency program that is located in a very um, poor, under-resourced black and brown community. Sure. Um, and the reason why I remember this so much is that we had this, these huge name tags, like huge, and my hair's always been long. And so it kept getting caught in the name tag and twisted. I'm like, <laughs> all day I was like this. Um, and so you could see in this enormous name tag, my name, right? Yeah. Which is big block letters, Irene Blanco. It says we're walking around, you know, the, the chief is like, so people are like, oh, tell us about the patients. And the chief like just makes this face. And it's like, there's a lot of Spanish people here. Like with this fate, like, and I was like, I'm out. <laughs> like, I'm out. I was like, exactly. I was like, thank you so much. You know, I th actually, I think I have to, and like, people are like staring at me like, oh my God, she's going to leave. Like, this is the second look. This is, and I was like, I don't, I don't need this. I don't right. need this. I don't need you. I don't need craziness. Like, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. Like, I got to go. Right. Because that's what your chief resident is saying. And typically the chief residents are picked because of Leadership. their prominence, right? They're like the best of the best. If this is your best, I I, I don't want to see what your worst looks like. Sure. Right? Yeah. Like, especially when it comes to patient care. No, I don't need to be here. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, now we're going to switch gears again and talk about your specialty. Um, sure. Can you please describe first a blurb on internal medicine and then what you do, your subspecialty in rheumatology? Sure. So um, internal medicine is general adult medicine. So kit and caboodle, head to toe. Um, so all the specialties and organ systems that you think of. So cardiology, lungs, you know, pulmonology, nephrology, which is kidneys, gastroenterology, which is everything in the gut. Um, you know, we don't do skin. That'd be dermatology. We don't, um, even though we do maybe a little bit of rashes. Uh, we don't do eyes, that's also. And there may be some overlap in terms of like neuro and stroke and stuff because so many cardiovascular diseases, right, will lead to stroke. Sure. Uh, but endocrinology, et cetera. So all those ologies um, are subspecialties of us. Sure. And, and so and my sub-subspecialty, exactly, is uh, rheumatology, where it's the study of autoimmune and autoinflammatory diseases and conditions. So we do um, a lot of, and a lot of our diseases, ironically enough, um, manifest with arthritis or joint pain and inflammation, um, but we're not necessarily joint doctors. So we're not orthopedists. I don't operate. I do do some procedures, but I don't necessarily work so much in the joint. It's more, my diseases are, involve lots of different organ systems. And the joint and the musculoskeletal system happens to be one of them. So sometimes people are like, oh, all you do is arthritis, right? And I'm like, oh, no, 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 right? Um, so for example, the disease that I most focus on, which is called lupus, um, that literally involves every organ system. So we do, you know, heart inflammation, fluid around the heart, fluid around the lung, lung inflammation, um, interstitial lung disease, like literally every single organ system can have a manifestation. And so what drew you to your specialty and what qualities do you think make a successful resident in your field? Um, it's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, no, seriously, room is amazing. Um, it's just, it's like all of the coolest parts of like, when you're in medical school, you're going to hear about all the like really weird esoteric diseases in every organ system. Sure. All of those fall under us, right? So like all of those crazy, weird diseases that are like, oh my God, this is so complicated. Like what, what is happening? That's us. And that's like, just so cool, right? Because we deal with like, not only are patients 
sick, but you feel like you have a particular expertise to help take care of them, right? Um, and it's a, like a lot of like immunology and the immune system, which I love, I love, I love, I love. Um, it's so fascinating to me. Like, I love to say that like room stretches my brain in all the right ways, right? Yeah. It makes me think really, really hard and I'm exhausted um, at the end of the day, but it's like all good, right? Yeah. Cause you're sitting like, oh my God, what's wrong? Um, our medicines are really um, very cool. It's like, you know, cutting edge technology. So, you know, you see them on TV, ask your doctor about Humira, ask your doctor about Umbrella. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, one that became really prominent, especially in COVID, because potentially a lot of times patients with COVID, they start to get better and then they crash really hard. And that's probably because of an autoimmune, autoinflammatory surge that happens. So like rheumatologists have been really, really involved in the treatment of COVID. Our medicines have been taken over um, and now we actually have a national shortage of one of our medicines that seems to maybe work a little bit when patients are very, very sick from COVID um, because like of our expertise in the immune system and stuff like that. So it's like, number one, it's super sciencey, but also number two, it disproportionately affects particularly women of color, right? And so, you know, training here when I was a medical student, for some reason, and it's funny because I grew up with an aunt with lupus, but I never really understood it. And she was in Ecuador and I was here. So I didn't really see her that much, but like I knew about what the manifestations would look like. Um, but it was like once I was here and then I was on my medicine rotations and all of these women that like look and sound like me and are from similar backgrounds, et cetera, are now all admitted right to the hospital that I started getting exposed more and more. Um, and I just happen to have these really um, interesting and compelling cases during my third and fourth year. And then once you start studying about it more, and I really liked women's health, I really liked internal medicine, I really liked like the crazy esoteric diseases. And the fact that like, they impact women of color, like so violently, frankly, um, and really typically, they tend to be younger. Sure. Right. So, you know, it was just kind of like, it was that constellation of like, I could do primary care sort of stuff without doing the primary care diseases, which didn't really interest me that much. I could do a lot of general internal medicine, which I liked, but I could do it with more sort of science techie sort of <laughs> meds and diseases than, than other ones. Sure. And if you had to pick three qualities that you think people that are going into internal medicine, interested in internal medicine have to have, what would they be? Um, curiosity. Um, and curiosity to really dig deep, right? Not just to kind of learn about things, but like when things don't make sense, you sit there and you ask yourself why, sure. right? Um, so like a deep aching curiosity. I think, um, a desire to really engage with the patient um, and a sense of advocacy. Sure. And how do you think that differs from like something that's more surgical or something that you would, you think don't require those same qualities? I mean, I think you're going to use that throughout all of medicine, but I think, you know, the proportions maybe change a little bit, sure. right? Um, you know, we're an outpatient specialty, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want we're an outpatient specialty and all of our diseases are incurable. Yeah. Right? So, you know, if you want a one and done, that's not my specialty, right? Sure. If you don't want to constantly be focusing on what else can go wrong with this patient, right? Um, this is not necessarily the field for you. If you don't, you know, our patients, we can get them healthy, but when they get sick, they get very, very sick. So if you don't like that sort of level of acuity, right? If like your anxiety just gets too triggered when, you know, your patients are going downhill, this is maybe not the specialty for you, right? Because we can definitely see people at really sort of life and death inflections. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's a sense of all of the, you know, you need curiosity, you need advocacy, you need engaging with patients for sort of lots of specialties. But like, for example, something like radiology, you may not necessarily have as much direct patient care, right? And, 
I think you mentioned that in rheumatology, you have some of the longest relationships with your patients. Yeah. I mean, we have like primary care, like we have very, very long relationships with patients. So, you know, today in clinic, we had a lupus patient that I first met when I was a fourth year medical student on the floors. So I've now known her since what, 2003, 2002, you know, we're talking about 17, 18 years, right? Like it's amazing. You know, it's amazing. And like for some patients, like, you know, you had your kids together, like, you know, you got married at the same time, potentially got divorced at the same time, right? Like you're, you're going through these life journeys with them and, you know, like it's a blessing. You're, you're part of their, you know, you talk about, I think women talk about this a lot, like finding your tribe, right. Finding your village to like help you get stuff done at home and help you raise your kids. Like you are part of this person's village. Sure. Sure. Right. And eventually you start to get to know everybody, like, because you just know each other for so long. Sure. And okay. So this next question is going to be a little bit tough for you because I know you do a million and one things, but as, as simple as possible, what does a typical day in the life look like for you? Um, so I don't, I'm actually not in the outpatient setting that much anymore. Um, more just because I had too many jobs and my patients were like too complicated. Um, so really it's, um, I do 12 weeks on the inpatient service a year. Um, so that's broken up. Like I'll I'll do two weeks at a time. And then in the morning, I'll either be teaching or in meetings. And then in the afternoon, I spend the rest of the afternoon in the hospital, seeing patients admitted with our diseases. That's what it looks like when I'm on service. Um, when I'm not on service every Tuesday, I run the, um, lupus clinic where the fellows learn how to treat lupus. Um, and then the rest of my time is mostly with you guys, with the medical school, um, with the medical school, the students, um, various curricular committees, et cetera. Sure. And in one sentence, what about your specialty brings you the most satisfaction? Oh, the patients and the trainees, right? Cause it's like the patients are amazing and you know, the trainees love what I love, right? right? Like they love room and I'm like, yes. Right. Awesome. So for the last few minutes of the talk, I want to talk about mentorship and I know you touched on it earlier and how important it is, but I really want to hone in on that now. So kind of to set the precedent, what role has mentorship played in your own career? It's funny because I think the, my early career, it was marked by such a, like a lack of mentorship. (laughs) That's important too. talk about. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Like the vacuum. And like, once you find a mentor and these, these people are just like so helpful and wonderful. Um, I have a mentor now who I absolutely adore, um, who I call her my work mom. That literally Mother's Day, I'm texting her like, oh my God, happy Mother's Day to the best work mommy ever. I love you so much. <laughs> She's like, I think you texted me before my kids. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, you know, it becomes such, it, it's such a comparison of like where your career can go when you have sort of those sounding boards and those real sounding boards where you know, somebody will be kind to you, but will not sugarcoat things for you and can really help guide you through the process. It's enormous. It's enormous. And when you don't have it, you could feel very lost without it, especially as, you know, a first gen sort of student, you're like, who the hell do I talk to about these things? Um, Because, right, like nobody tells you Right. I, I didn't have anybody at home that's like, let me read your personal statement, right? They didn't even read in English. Let's <laughs> read a personal statement, right? right. No, I can even having, <clears throat> excuse me, even having a father that's a physician, I was still flailing for the first two years of undergrad. So I can only imagine having nobody in your family with that background, having nobody oh, yeah. to advise you. I was flailing. Right. And you're yeah. just like completely just a lost in the dark, you, you know, 
I'm lucky I figured it out kind of, Mm. right? But like, I wonder, you know, if I had to go back and do it all again, um, would I have chosen this path? Mm. And, you know, how would it have changed if somebody had thrown me a lifeline? Right, right. And so kind of on the same line, what qualities do you think make the best mentees? And what qualities do you think make the best mentors? Um, I'll start with the mentors and then we'll go to the mentees. I mean, I think, so mentor-mentee relationships can change over time. You don't, you, you probably shouldn't have just one mentor, right? And then some mentor-mentee relationships are short-lived, like during a project, during a time of life thank you very much. And then it kind of, you guys drift apart and some will last decades, right? It, it always sort of depends. And sure. you'd be surprised who is your biggest advocate and don't necessarily think that because you're potentially the same demographic, et cetera, as someone that they advocate or sponsor you or actually have your best um, intention, right? Your, your best, your, your interest at, at heart. Can, can um, you define sponsorship? Because that was a really important term for me to learn. Yeah. So sponsorship, it's just somebody talked to me about like sponsorship versus mentorship. And I'm going to butcher was, this. Was definition. it Dr. Holden? Uh, no, but, it, but I think we talk about it a lot, right? Yeah. Especially there's so many like women in medicine, URM in medicine, career development things. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like this, this comes up over and over and over again. Right? Yeah. So mentor is the person that's going to talk to you, right? talk to you, guide you, et cetera. The sponsor, now your mentor can be your sponsor, but oftentimes your sponsor is not your mentor because they're they're somewhat removed. So the sponsor is the person that talks about you, right? Is the person that like when they're in a room, so they typically tend to be higher up than you. A mentor could be sort of a peer, even somebody underneath. Like I have these two mentees that honestly teach me things every single day, sure. like every single day. And I've known them since they were both undergrad, one since high school and the other one since undergrad. Right. And now they're about to graduate medical school. Sure. And literally like, I feel like they teach me more than I have ever taught them. <laughs> right. Um, but like the sponsor is typically somebody above you that when they get into those rooms that they're like, huh, who would be good for this project? It's like, you know, who would be good? That's your sponsor, right? They talk about you. They're the ones that are like planting seeds, right? And you may not even realize that this is your sponsor, right? right? Um, But that they've they've been watching you and watching how you work and watching what you do. And they're like, this is somebody that we need to pay attention to Um, and and make sure that they grow and they stay here. Because when we leave, we're going to when when this person leaves, we're going to be kicking ourselves. Right. That we didn't keep this person. Sure. For sure. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. And I'm glad that you did that. Um, And then qualities for good mentees. I think qualities for the mentees, I do think, so it depends. If the mentor-mentee relationship is one of just sort of like advising, where do you think I should go with my career? Sort of what classes do you think I could take? um, That may not necessarily need much preparation. But if it's like you're looking for like a research mentor, a work mentor, a project mentor, et cetera, you need to be on your game. Like this is your mentor, but they kind of have like a boss sort of relationship to you, right? So if they trust you enough to entrust you with a project and like you don't work on it, you work on it last minute, you disappear, right? Like, no, yeah. you know, if you're going to be a mentee, especially on a project and there are deadlines, there are timelines, et cetera. You are, you're meant to be responsible. You need to then be held accountable, sure. right? And you'd be surprised, like, I think most mentors will put up with a lot, but at some point they're just done, yeah. right? For, for and sure. that can't be held against the mentor. Sure. 
sure, right? Sure. Like if you didn't show up when you were supposed to show up, if you were supposed to turn in something for that, they could read it. You know, if you're sending them things at 2 a.m. and it's due the next day by 9 a.m., they're not going to read it. <laughs> like, you want them to stop everything that they're doing to write, read your chicken scratch that probably was written last minute because they're probably not reading version 26, right? right? At 2 a.m. They're right. reading version one, right. right? And like, I am now old enough and tired enough that I'm like, I'm sorry, good luck. <laughs> like, I'm not, you're lucky if I respond. Right. Like if you send yeah. me that nonsense and tomfoolery yeah. at 2 a.m., right? Yeah. That's just not gonna happen. <laughs> I, it's true. I'm, I'm I'm glad you brought it up. Um, okay, so getting to kind of the end of the talk, this has been absolutely amazing. I want to ask three quick questions. Sure. First, regardless of specialty interests, what's one book you think every student interested in medicine should read? Oh God, I hate all of those books. <laughs> um, it doesn't have to be about medicine, but just one book that you think everybody interested in medicine. So I do think everybody should read Medical Apartheid. That is that is a hard read. Not be I mean, because the just the material is so horrible, right? It's all about like, you know, racism throughout the years in medicine. Um, and, and Harriet Washington starts from the beginning, like it is intense and relentless. Like th this book, you know, I've read it now probably like two or three times. And every time it takes me like six months to get through. Cause I'm like, Oh, that, that was a little rough. I need to stop reading this. Um, so I do think everybody should read, um, medical apartheid. Um, I mean, I'm a big reader. I read everything. I was a lit major. Um, so I do think that people should read religion, philosophy, literature from whichever canon, right? Like, I don't think you should only read the Western canon. That's insane. Right. So whether you want to pick up, you know, what, you know, if you want to go old school and sit around and debate like Kant versus Hume, <laughs> Right? which is a very common comparison. You want to go to like more modern day philosophers. You want to talk about modern day literature, right? Whether you're picking up Toni Morrison or where you're picking up Homer. Um, I think that there's such, so much to be gained mm -hmm. from the humanities that is directly contributing to medicine, right? Because when we talk about if, what's literature, if not like applied psychology, sure. right? It gives you insight into how people think, how people behave, how people feel. And what is it when we're doctoring, right? If people bringing, A, they don't feel well, but they bring all of their emotions and relationships and thought processes like together, right? So if you're just so neck deep into a book where you only look at a human as if they're a series of molecules, you completely miss the human experience, sure. right? And you completely miss how you can engage as a human, like with your patients, sure. right? So yeah, like if it were up to me, I'd completely destroy pre-med. <laughs> And make it all about like literature and philosophy and sociology and anthropology, right? To really sort of like understand people and humans sure. and, and, and not like on some psychology, psychobabble stuff, which I think is, yes, yeah. it's important. And I sounded like oddly dismissive, but no, it's important. But it's like to think about like the sociology and the, the anthropology, like the culture that people bring with them, sure. right? Yeah. Into the clinical space yeah. and the medical culture that we bring in to the clinical space and how those two oftentimes clash um, because they're just so disparate. Um, so read more, read more, yes. <laughs> read more and read more fun stuff. Yeah. So but thank you. Uh, what is one resource you think all underrepresented pre-med students should access or be familiar with? Um, anything. I mean, I think in their undergrads, if they do have good pre-med advising, like be in that office all Early. the time. Early. Early and often, right? So again, 
don't show up with your personal statement, right? The day before applications are due, you know, like, don't be me, um, <laughs> right? Be there early and often because odds are you probably find, can find somebody that can really help and guide you in that office. I think, um, you know, there are tons of pathway programs formerly known as pipeline programs, right? That's a great way to find mentors and mentorship um, that especially if you don't have a pre-med office that you feel that you can engage with potentially or pre-health office, right? Because we need dentists, we need physical therapists, we need everybody. Um, you know, potentially you will find other mentors there that can help supplement, right? And I think once you then get into medical school, you know, engaging with offices like ours, because this is where we take the baton, right? And we're like, okay, now that you're here, right? Let's get you not only to graduation, right? Because graduation, if we matriculated you, graduation should be the given, right? It's, right. you know, get you to now to be and become the doctor that you want to become, right? So we take the baton from your pre-health advisor, from those mentors and say, you know, okay, Justin, <laughs> like, let's go. And figure out how we can support you as you finish off um, this next leg of the journey. Cause it's not, you know, the journey's long. This right. is just a part of it. And last but certainly not least, what advice do you want to leave with underrepresented students pursuing medicine? Um, I think perseverance is important. I think a certain sense of resilience is important. But I think also, you know, these were not environments that were set up by us or for us. Um, and so try as much as you can to find that school or find that environment that you feel will support you because this career is really hard. This journey is really challenging and it's really difficult. It's not only for medical school, it's for residency, it's for fellowship, it's for your first job, your second job, your third, fourth, fifth job. This goes for your spouses as well, right? This goes for everything that I feel like sometimes people will say, well, oh, it's this school, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to this school. And then they get there and it's like, they're beaten with a stick every single day, right? Like that's not worth it because when you leave, you are a shell of the person that started, right? And then now you go into the next phase of training, which is really challenging. Then you go to the next phase of training, which is really challenging. And then you become a faculty member and now everything's on your license, right? And then potentially you have a spouse, maybe you have kids, maybe now you have a mortgage and it just sort of piles on. Um, so if you don't find environments that you think can nurture you, like truly nurture you. And so like ask those questions, like what's the climate like? How do students feel here? Like what's the training like? What is expected of you? really dig deep because people are like, oh, it's only for four years. A lot of bad things can happen in four years. A lot of great things can happen in four years, right? And you want it to skew more towards the great things than the bad things. Um, and then I'll also tell them, and like I told you during orientation, right? Like build your village, sure. build your village, like hold tight to your friends, hold tight to your, you know, the, the positive people and influences in your life. Um, because that there were, there were, are what going to get you through. Right. I think so many times people are like, I'm a medical student. Like I can't hang out with my friends. I'm going to break up with my partner. I'm going to, right. Because I have to study. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you know what? Like life is now cold and lonely yeah. because you don't study 24 seven. Right. So then when you look to the left and to the right and you're like, damn, <laughs> who's left, yeah. right. Yeah. Who's left. Yeah. Um, so you need to kind of think about how you center you, um, in this whole insane thing that we undertook to be doctors, um, and to take care of patients. Sure. Well, that was an absolutely phenomenal way to end the episode. Thank you again, Dean Blanco, for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know you have a lot to do. I know that you had a lot to do before this and a lot to do after this, so I really appreciate it. And until next time, remember to keep inspiring by example.